them later. So thank you, Jody, for, for joining us. Um, I do want to, as, as we talked before, I do want to give you the honor and, and, and refer to you by your official title. I know we know each other uh, you know, quite well over these years, but it's my pleasure to welcome uh, the Honorable Jody Wilson-Rabel, the MP of Vancouver Granville, the, uh, which is the riding that Temple Shalom is in and much of the Jewish community is in. And, and Jody, it's wonderful to have you with us this afternoon. It's, uh, like, I don't know if the skies are going to clear up, but it's a brighter day whenever I get to spend some time with you. So thank you for being Aww. here. Thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, just a little housekeeping as people are joining us via the webinar. Um, if you have a question for, um, for, uh, for, for, um, I'm going to say, for, if you have a question for Jody, I'm going to trip over my words the whole time. You can use the Q&A button down in the, uh, in the, in the bar at the bottom of the Zoom screen. Don't use the chat for your questions. Use the Q&A button. And then uh, we have some moderators that'll help us figure out which questions uh, are most prominent. You can vote up your question with the little thumb sign, and that'll tell us if more people want that question asked. And, uh, and then we'll try to put them to, uh, to Jody. So Jody, tell us a bit about uh, life of a, uh, of a member of parliament in the midst of a global pandemic. <laughs> uh, well, um, thanks, Rabbi. And uh, I mean, first of all, I'd like to say um, thanks for inviting me. I know it's been in the works for a little while and, and happy to virtually talk to many of uh, your congregants on uh, on Zoom. Um, yeah, I mean, life as an MP during a, a global pandemic is certainly something that uh, I never expected. And I'm, I know that uh, everyone listening um, is adapting to our, our new reality and the changes in our new reality every day. Um, it seems like the, the federal election was a long time ago and we had, uh, I mean, I would guess um, a couple of weeks in couple, three weeks to a month in Parliament where we actively debated various uh, issues and then the middle of March rolled around and things changed really quickly and um, I'm, I find it very interesting to be an MP. Um, it's a lot busier um, during this period of time. Um, my staff, um, I have four, we have four people that work with us in, in the Vancouver Granville constituency office, one in Ottawa, and I know that they're working incredibly hard, harder than uh, they normally do, um, responding to, to calls and emails. Um, our physical office is closed, but uh, um, yeah, it's been, uh, and it changes in terms of the inquiries that we get. I mean, there's a lot of federal programs, aid programs that have been rolled out and, and trying to navigate uh, those programs and the criteria and assist constituents to do that um, has taken a lot of our time. Um, certainly for our staff uh, working with um, foreign affairs and other offices to repatriate uh, Canadians who were abroad whether that was in Peru or in India or other places. Um, so yeah, it's, it's incredibly busy and, and like everybody, I'm sure um, being at home, as you said, you have two, you have three kids. Um, I don't have any, but you know, I have a husband and, and being in closed um, spaces, you know, is sometimes challenging and, and uh, wanting to get out and walk around is something that I really uh, like to do and want to do more of. So it's been, uh, it's been good, but uh, very interesting and adapting to a new political reality um, and virtual parliament we can talk about, but uh, there's a lot of different uh, considerations in this political realm. Yeah. Are you traveling back and forth to Ottawa much? I, I've gone back to Ottawa once and mm -hmm. 
Um, we started up with virtual parliament um, towards the end of March. And well, it's not virtual parliament, it's actually a virtual committee of parliament where we consider mm -hmm. COVID-19. And um, so Tuesdays and Thursdays, we have a committee uh, where it's quite remarkable, like you and I are talking with however many people listening in. Um, every Tuesday and Thursday, we have a committee hearing where MPs can ask questions. And there's somewhere in the range of 230 to 330 MPs mm -hmm. on the line at the same time. And then on Wednesdays, there's the in um, the House of Commons discussions that we have. And I went back um, May 5th, I believe is the day that I went back. And that was a very interesting experience to fly um, and to be in the House of Commons with about 33 members of parliament. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, I do want to dive into some of the questions. Um, and, and I want to start actually talking about our senior care homes and, and seniors in our community. You know, I mean, that seems to have been the locus of so much of the COVID outbreak here in, in British Columbia. And we're you know, amazed at the work that, uh, that Dr. Henry and, and, Dr. and Minister Dix, uh, our own uh, Patty Daly, who's a member of our congregation here at Vancouver Coastal, and all the frontline healthcare workers have done to address those situations. But it also pointed out a bit of a vulnerability, more than a bit really, in our senior care system, um, of which we have many Jewish community members, as most communities do within the system. And there seems to be a clear move of the federal and provincial governments into that jurisdiction of senior care. And then the prime minister a few weeks ago also admonished us that we shouldn't have soldiers caring for seniors uh, as they were called in to help uh, and to provide some, some additional support and relief within the care homes. Uh, do you see a scenario where the, where the federal government or the provincial governments uh, would nationalize senior, a senior care system? And if you do, what do you think that might look like? Well, I, I do see a scenario where there would be at least national standards in terms of, of um, long-term care for elders, uh, some standardized uh, role and uh, around employment and hours for personal support workers. I mean, I agree with you. And I think that there isn't a Canadian across the country that hasn't been exposed or doesn't, hasn't had to deal with um, one of their relatives getting older and needing that care. And uh, if COVID-19 and this pandemic has exposed anything, it's exposed um, the incredible impact that it has um, on vulnerable people among us. And I know like you and, and, your, and people at Temple Shalom, I mean, how we treat our most vulnerable is um, indicative or says who we are as a society. And I think that all of us, um, certainly the federal government and provinces and, and Canadians generally need to, to take some stock about what has happened and how the impact has been more pronounced, particularly in, in seniors in, in homes. Um, so I know that the, and the prime minister and, and premiers and, and uh, health leaders have been having conversations about how um, they can come together and provide guidelines for for seniors care and long-term care facilities um, and I, I hope and I, I'm 
pretty confident that uh, most MPs are not going to let this conversation fall off the table um, because we should all be somewhat um, ashamed and um, take action to ensure that the conversation continues beyond this. Um, and, you know, in, in terms of our constitution, the, the role of, for healthcare um, is something that is administered by the provinces, but the federal government also has a responsibility in taking a leadership role, setting those national standards, recognizing the diversity that exists in terms of the different regions in our country, but um, you know, senior care, elder care is an extension of our healthcare system, and and whether or not we na nationalize standards through the um, the Canadian Health Act or a separate piece of legislation, it's something that we have to do. It's a it's a real lesson to have been learned, and and um, whether it's putting together a committee to actually produce recommendations or I was talking to one senator that was saying we should actually have a royal commission to actually bring forward robust recommendations about how it can be done and done properly and, and have longevity. Um, I think we should do that and I, uh, I would hope that uh, there isn't many among us that would, would disagree that this isn't a, a priority um, that we need to look after people no matter what stage that they're in in their life. Yeah, no, I think that we're, we're completely on the same page. And you're right, with, within all uh, cultures that I know and communities, you know, the, the, the care for your, for your parents or that generation is, is reflective, you know, both of the, the love that they gave you in your own life that you're giving back to them. And it, and it speaks to, you know, amongst the care of the most vulnerable, the values of society. You know, setting yeah. standards is one thing, providing the funding to meet those standards, you know, and not putting our health, the, uh, you know, the, the senior assistants that are in these uh, healthcare facilities uh, in a position where they have to work two or three jobs just to, just to scrap together a livable wage. Uh, exactly. And that's where I think a lot of the transmission was taking place until they, you know, they figured that out, that people were going from one home to another, the morning, the afternoon shifts, those kinds of things. So, yeah, and I hear... I hear that, sorry, Matt, but I, I mean, I hear that on the same vein that the um, Canadian Forces members that are working in care homes are now contracting um, COVID-19. So it's, it's, not a, it's not the solution. It's a temporary one, but uh, something more long-term is, is what we need to find. Yeah. Oh, good, good. Um, you know, Temple Shalom is a nonprofit. Uh, it's a charity, and, and, and many of us, though we're not frontline medical workers, we're on the front lines very much of the emotional and social supports that, that are necessary within our communities. And that goes you know, across faith communities and, and certainly into um, you know, all the other nonprofits and charities that are trying to do this work on the downtown east side here in Vancouver and you know, within indigenous communities and all those things. As we start to try to come back into our facility, uh, whether it's for you know, in-person worship, which I think our community has agreed we're gonna go slow with and, and, and start maybe outdoors and wait and see, um, but just as we start to come back into our facilities, there's going to be, you know, infrastructure changes that we're going to make, need to make, cost to us to become, um, you know, suitable workplaces for the, for, the, for the professionals that work there and for our volunteers that come into the building to provide proper social distancing, the, the proper sanitation, all the cleaning that goes on. Um, the federal government was really quite responsive when synagogues and other faith houses of worship needed to, uh, to create more robust security for the hate crimes that were uh, you know, ramping up with, within the country and in particular in the province, anti-Semitism, particularly here in British Columbia. Uh, I'm, and they created the, the SIP grant, the, the Security and Infrastructure uh, Program. 
I'm wondering if the federal government would consider either adding on to that so that the nonprofits and charities and particularly houses of worship could receive assistance. We're, we're not for profits. We can't pass these costs on to our members um, or creating some other kind of program that uh, would provide that kind of support so these places like Temple Shalom can, can, can better provide the services to our members without having to take the, the financial hit that's going to come and without a, you know, a way to increase revenues to pay for it. Right. Well, um, I know that uh, you had sent on, uh, you know, query in this regard to me earlier. And um, I mean, it's an important question. And I mean, I mean, I'll say a couple of things. First of all, I think that the work that Temple Shalom does, that um, so many organizations within the Jewish community in Vancouver, Granville, and beyond, and and organizations not profit not for profits generally do, is uh, has been extraordinary to fill some of those gaps. Certainly, to take care of um, people within our community. So I I recognize the extraordinary work that has been done and the resources online and otherwise. Um, Anyway, back to the question that you asked. Um, I literally asked it, is it Friday today? It is yesterday when we had our virtual um, parliamentary committee. And, and so I asked your question, Rabbi, of uh, the minister, I can't remember her title, um, um, Bardish Chagger. And um, like many questions um, in question period, you don't necessarily get answers. But uh, I'm glad that I was able to ask it. And I mean, there was reception um, by her to the reality that we need to, that we're in a, um, an extraordinary uh, situation and, and that there are a lot of organizations, charities and not-for-profits that are filling a lot of those gaps. Um, and I mean, historically that has been so where government programs and services are providing the necessary needs for communities. Um, so, I mean, I would say that it's something that that we should continue to work on together to press government for um, governments for and um, to their credit, uh, the federal government has introduced so many different programs. Uh, obviously, in, in this rapidly changing world, um, some of those programs need to be adapted. And that's where you know, other parties and members of parliament have assisted and that's been good. Um, but saying that, I think that this is something that we need to continue to ask the question on. And uh, because it's such an extraordinary circumstance and trying to get back to whatever our new normal is um, to enable um, faith-based organizations to actually come back together, however that it, it will manifest and have the necessary infrastructure to per protect the health and safety of people is important. And um, whether it's a bridge <laughs> to a new reality, um, uh, I mean, if you're getting money from the government, it's not doesn't necessarily make you a charity <laughs> in that regard, but there needs to be um, some bridging for the, the reality back to the new normal. So I, I would say um, for you and, and others um, that we continue to work on this with the government. Great, I'd love to do that. I mean, because we want our gathering places, all of them, to be safe for people to gather into. And whether we're going to be 50 or less for some time, or God willing, you know, be able to gather in large groups again, we want everybody to feel, you know, they want we want them to feel safe in their sanctuaries. I mean, that's the whole idea. Yeah. Uh, Can I ask you a question, Rabbi? Of course, sure. Just on on uh, like coming together in your sermons. Do you know how many people? Um, are are tuning in to your sermons like just an yeah, idea no, it's it's in the hundreds which i can't say oh, good. a normal thing on a you know normally on a weekend we'd have a 
between the two services, a Friday night and a Saturday, maybe 120 people or so. And we've probably tripled that online now. I don't know if people are staying all the way through. Maybe they get to the sermon and that's when they leave. <laughs> I should probably front them. <laughs> um, but, uh, no, it's, it's remarkable. And as we were talking just before we started that, you know, the accessibility that the internet has provided here for those that are homebound, for those that are immunocompromised, uh, as we get later in the year, people don't want to drive at night you know, because it's yeah. dark and it's wet. And so my sense is that we're going to be living in these in this sort of dual reality, this this hybrid probably, you know, this will be one of the things that lingers. God willing, the pandemic goes away, but this this will linger and we'll have to live in that space. Uh, in fact, this whole program was provided by funding that came from our members to make sure that we had the technology to do this through our caring community fund. Uh, in right. addition to providing, you know, for basic and essential needs for congregants, um, you know, who find themselves uh, at, in, in, you know, really precarious economic situations. Um, but yeah, we didn't have this technology uh, quite as robustly until this moment. So there's, there's nothing like a crisis to, to create innovation. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm tired of innovating. I don't know about you, but it's like every day I gotta create a new way to do a 3000 year old tradition. But <laughs> Um, I want to talk about the borders, and I'm a, uh, I'm a U.S. Uh, citizen, a Canadian permanent resident. I apparently was this close to citizenship, and now the whole pandemic, so I'm waiting for the letter, but um, okay. I'll let you know when it comes. But, you know, I do look over the border, and I, and I you know, I see my family down there, and, and certainly friends, and uh, being, you know, in British Columbia and seeing how, how the pandemic kind of had one of its first hotspots right over our border in Washington State. Um, I wonder about those conversations that are taking place. Uh, I'm of two hearts. When the border is closed, I feel safer uh, right now, just given what I see on the news. But at the same time, I feel much more distant and, uh, you know, a longing to, to be able to see my parents and, and have reunifications and stuff. When those conversations take place, what process is being used to evaluate how long the border should stay closed to non-essential you know, commerce or travel? Uh, and are we equal partners in that conversation? Is it, are, you know, are we really the sovereign nation at the table or, you know, is America the big, uh, uh, the, the big neighbor in this, or the, the big kid on the block? So could you let us behind the scenes a little bit of that and share a little bit of how the process, how the sausage is made? <laughs> Sometimes we don't want to actually know how the sausage right. is made, as you know, but, um, yeah, I mean, I can try. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, happy to reflect back some of um, back to some of the time when I was uh, Minister of Justice and involved more yeah. um, deeply in those conversations with our American neighbor. Um, but I mean, I guess the, the question about whether or not we're equal partners, I mean, this is uh, a very, very age old and important question. And um, in a global pandemic and, and thinking about um, how, particularly here in British Columbia, how we have been so diligent and applaud the leadership of Dr. Bonnie Henry and Minister Dix and the, the premier who has given way um, to those two people to do their job, which I think is, shows tremendous leadership and we have been very successful. Um, I think that uh, we, and our, our relationship with the United States, uh, I think we're in a different 
reality right now than when we were when um, the current president was elected and um, I was a minister at the time and trying to to figure out what he was going to do and not do and and wanting to um, ensure that we maintain that positive relationship with our biggest trading partner and and the recognition that people like you have family um, in the United States. We have such, I mean, a lot of common values with our American friends and family, um, but there are differences too. And um, in, in terms of the conversation around the border, I know that the prime minister, the premiers, um, I know particularly here in British Columbia on a very regular basis are having uh, discussions around what opening up the border means. And um, I'm so thankful, I don't know about you, but that the borders are going to remain closed until June the 21st and, and likely beyond that. Um, but it, it really depends on the conversations that are being had between the levels of or the different jurisdictions. And I am hopeful, even though that um, I know borders are a, a federal jurisdiction, um, that there is a recognition of the differences that exist along that border um, and that decisions aren't taken um, based on politics, but are based first and foremost on health and safety. So. I mean, I think there's discussions that are being had about um, uh, what really is an essential uh, service, uh, what is essential travel. Um, Dr. Bonnie Henry has talked about the need um, and understanding the need for family re reunification. And I think that should be a priority when it's safe to do so. Um, but even having said that, we, I mean, we have to make as individuals some choices about um, what we do, um, where we are going to live. I mean, some circumstances dictate where we live, but um, it always has to be paramount. Um, but I guess broadly speaking, in terms of our relationship with the United States, and I'll say this and I try not to be political, although I am a politician, um, uh, I mean, there's an election coming up. And uh, who knows if the current president is going to be the president after that election. Um, the United States uh, has taken um, some very, very different um, directions or paths than, than we have in terms of their approach to trying to manage the the, the pandemic and we need to be concerned about that um, you know the, the United States has been a world power and, and still is um, but I think that it also has caused some discussions and reflections among many people about um, our own country our role in the world um, how we want to um, continue to contribute and be a leader in the world and the nature of our relationship with our, our neighbors to the south is something that we need to consider. And we live in a very diverse country. Um, uh, there's a huge polarization that we see occurring in uh, the United States right now. And we just need to be very mindful of, of that reality and its impacts on us. Well, that, that certainly addresses you know, our southern border. I'm not too worried about people coming in from the northern border right now. Um, but what about international borders in terms of air travel? Do you see Canada restricting travel from certain countries, opening up to others? Um, you know, and how would we make that determination? Well, I mean, I think it's a, a difficult determination as reflected by some of the conversations and statements that we've heard from 
from federal ministers about actually deciding to close the borders. Um, I think it's a possibility for sure. I mean, we've seen that in the past where countries have uh, restricted travel from various countries. I mean, it's a, a right of every Canadian citizen to come back into the country. Um, I think uh, implementing in a significant, diligent way the Quarantine Act, having um, uh, the technology to be able to uh, and the uh, the availability of testing to be able to test and test um, regularly to have contact uh, tracing like they do in many countries if you're wanting to come in um, that we will know, you know the, they'll know the whereabouts of, of where you are and who you encounter. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean it's a it's a it's a difficult question if you uh, uh, restrict travel from one country you need to have a clear idea uh, and criteria for the reasons why and uh, um, be consistent uh, in that. You know, I guess, thank you. I mean, I guess related to that is, is a, another question that I have, which is about some of the, uh, the vulnerabilities that this pandemic has pointed out in terms of our domestic production in the food supply chain of uh, PPE, of medical supplies, and, you know, the, the length of our supply chains relying on, you know, uh, global uh, transfer of, of goods and services and materials into uh, into Canada, where we aren't really manufacturing those things now at home. Um, obviously, we've ramped up domestic production in an emergency situation. Um, do you uh, imagine that there will be uh, new directives or incentives for Canadian manufacturers uh, and along again with the food supply chain uh, that will continue beyond just the, the crisis of this moment? Do you think that there's a lesson that has been learned about Canada's self-sufficiency um, in the midst of this? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, I think there's the possibility for a lot of lessons to be learned. I think that there's um, necessary reflection um, that would contextualize the conversation about um, having food security, um, producing various um, PPE here um, or other. Um, TVs, et cetera, whatever else we want to produce and be self-sufficient. I mean, broadly speaking, if we're, we live in a global reality and, or we have, and now um, we're considering what living in a global reality means in terms of transmission of a, of a deadly virus. And um, we're seeing throughout the world that um, many nation states, including ours, because we have restrictions in terms of entry and travel, um, are putting up walls when since the second world war as you know we have been taking those walls down and we benefit significantly from international trade and commerce um, uh, in the sense obviously that um, we um, get goods uh, a lot cheaper when we uh, have trade uh, with other countries and have production elsewhere um, so as a general comment if we need to know what we're prepared to pay for certain things. If we are going to produce a television, for example, in Canada, it's going to cost a heck of a lot more than it does right now. Um, we have seen in terms of PPE, we've seen uh, various companies manufacture PPE. Um, uh, there's going to need to be regulations around it if that's going to continue. Um, there need those companies and the government for that matter, if this is a decision that's made, it's gonna to have to determine if there's that market um, for the PPE. 
Um, so I think there's a lot of different considerations that I think broadly the consideration between do we actually live in a global world, which I think we did and, and we do, and recognizing the fundamental interconnectedness between all of us, the virus exemplifies that more than anything, um, and the need to um, understand that global reality while ensuring that we protect the health and safety. But I mean, in terms of food security, I think that... Uh, we have lots of opportunities to be able to, more than anything else, um, to ensure that we have um, food security, that we, um, and we have seen it in Vancouver, um, that we're supporting local businesses, that we're, you know, I mean, um, my, my mother and my husband started a garden, like a growing vegetable. It's like, so, so people can shop locally or, um, um, eat off uh, the land and what grows from it. And we're seeing a lot of people, particularly up in the north, are going back on the land and living off the land. So if there's a way, and I think it's important um, that we recognize that we can um, have our own um, domestic food security, um, it's important thing to, to work towards. I mean, we've We've addressed challenges that exist in the dairy industry um, by way of legislation. We see what happened with the, the Carhill um, food processing plant, and we've seen disruptions in our supply chain um, uh, and the ability for us to actually be able to distribute um, the, the overproduction of, of some of our uh, um, dairy products, for example, has been uh, problematic. So addressing the supply and uh, domestic food security, I think is a really important conversation and we should uh, work towards that. Yeah, I mean, something I know you and I care deeply about is our connection to the land and, and the impacts that we've had. We were talking a lot about global warming and the environment before the pandemic. And, you know, the, I think that the, the globe has been given a little bit of a, of a Sabbath, a little bit of a rest, more than a little. We, we've seen the reports of cleaner air and cleaner water. And, uh, and one of the biggest impacts we know is industrial farming. So to, to see things get a little smaller and, and for us to get more local, the Temple Shalom started a, a, you know, a Seeds of Hope project where we, we were donated by uh, West Coast Seeds, thousands of packets of seeds that couldn't be resold. And our oh, clients okay. are planting gardens on the condition that 10% or more of their gardens, and they're just coming into harvest now, go to the local food banks. And it's great oh, I love it. people doing that. You know, it's kind of our 2020 version of a victory garden, I guess. Um, but so what's the best growing vegetable right now, Rabbi? You know, I, we can't stop growing kale. It, it will, and, and my wife's the only one that eats it. So it's an issue, but <laughs> kale is, is coming out of our ears. Um, we're doing everything we can to, to get, uh, <laughs> to get through it. Um, but no, it's, it's incredible to see, you know, our land, uh, respond as it has. And it's a reminder of our connection to it. And this, this whole pandemic has been a reminder of the Im human impact we have on our environment. Uh, yeah. But there's also, I think, great pride that we get in being able to buy local, to, to buy Canadian products in the midst of this, to support our local businesses and, and you know, this, you know, dine out one night or order in one night kind of thing for our restaurants. Um, I love how, you know, again, the, the, the blessings in the midst of the curse, how this pandemic has pulled our communities together. Um, I want to ask one more question, and then I'm going to go to the to the long queue of questions that are starting to pile up for us. Uh, and this is um, one that's of particular interest to me. Um, so we, it has to do with universal basic income, and we've seen, and I and I know, and I read something earlier today about one of the studies that we really shouldn't equate the the CERB program with UBI because it's a it's a different situation. These are people that. Um, you know, the, how UBI or universal basic income would be distributed 
you know, how you do that, who receives it, how much it is, that's a whole big factor in it. But in an oversimplification, it is a little bit of a test of this idea that everybody needs or could receive a universal basic income, $1,000, $2,000 a month, um, that provides you know, dignity, that, that, that recognizes uh, human economic value, human value, human worth, not just economic worth. Um, and it, I know from talking to my own congregants who are out of work, those $2,000 or $4,000, if they're a couple, has made a tremendous difference for them. They're, you know, they're not worrying about putting food on the table and the rent. You know, they're able to make it work, and there's all the other subsidies, of course, that some can draw on as well. What are your thoughts? Is, I know the province has been looking at this, and a study is coming out soon. Could there be a, a provincial or federal universal basic income in Canada? Do you like the idea? Your thoughts on it? Um. I, I like the idea. I think that, um, I mean, I think we probably read some of the same reflections and articles about uh, the relationship between CERB and, and uh, the, the UBI. Um, I, in some of the articles that I read, um, I mean, it's going to be a very interesting unplanned experiment to get the data from the CERB uh, program and payments. And I mean, that's last 16 weeks and we'll see what happens beyond that. I know a lot of members um, or constituents in Vancouver Granville are asking about the extension of that. And I think that's a reflection um, of, you know, the congregates that you talked about, that it gives them, uh, you know, that ability to think about other things, to have some dignity and be able to go about their lives and um, changing um, uh, our index or how we look at um, health and well-being from being an economic one to a human one, I think is a really, really important thing um, that the pandemic has highlighted and recognizing um, the value of work, for example. Um, but I mean, I think that we're going in that direction for sure. As you said, BC has done some work in, in that regard as have other countries throughout the world. Um, the way that, that I think about uh, universal basic income um, is um, well, it's contextualized in my own background of being a proud Indigenous person. And in my culture, I mean, we're a very communitarian culture, and um, we believe in the redistrib redistribution of wealth. And um, however you have raised those revenues, um, those they need to be redistributed to ensure that every member of a society can fulfill their role and is, and is healthy and, and um, the quality of life is improved when everybody um, has that ability to have that basic um, comfort. So, I mean, it's an indigenous concept in, in my mind, looking at a basic um, income for individuals. It certainly is something that I'm hopeful um, that the government, governments will continue to have conversations around. I haven't heard anything specifically around UBI um, from the federal government, although there have been parties certainly that have been advocating for it. Um, I would be very open to having that conversation. And certainly um, if COVID has um, presented anything in terms of uh, uh, how we can alleviate the administration and the, the costs of programs and services and the overlap and the challenges of, of who gets it and the criteria, 
um, a universal basic income would enable the redistribution of the money that's been raised um, to individuals. So I, um, I think it's something that is very worthwhile uh, looking at. I'm hopeful that um, this is one of our our lessons that we've learned. And I mean, it's tested us and it's made us recognize um, the vulnerabilities again um, that many, many people have. Um, and if there are, um, is a way across the board, recognizing regional diversity and standards of living in different areas of the country, um, if there's a way across the board that we can provide the necessary um, money um, and uh, livable income for, for individuals, um, obviously taxing people that make a lot more. Um, but uh, um, I think it's definitely something that uh, um, for the vast majority of people that I've talked to and that call into our office is something uh, that uh, the door has been opened by the pandemic. Yeah, you know, I guess that's one of the things that gets me through the days. In, and when I talk with my congregation, it, it's that, you know, whenever there's a crisis throughout history, yeah, humanity has, has not always, but, but has always been given the opportunity. They haven't always succeeded in coming out better and having learned lessons from it and, and, and creating new models, you know, that, that if we could come out of this pandemic, a better society, a more just society, a more empathic society, you know, th there's no doubt that, that, that I would have rather have not had the pandemic and all the death and all the illness and the pain and all of that. Um, but it's incumbent upon us to, to try to make it a better world and, and to come out, you know, in, the, in, 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 uh, in better shape on the other side so that we, you know, we can face the next the next thing, uh, whether it's this or, or the the unimaginable, uh, with those the, with those new new abilities and, and partnerships. Um, so yeah. I do want to turn to some of the questions that, that we've been getting online, and there's been a lot of them, and I want to thank people for submitting them. And again, you can do that through the Q and A queue at the bottom of the screen. And if you see a question that you like, you can click the thumb the thumbs up button to vote it up. Um, so the first one uh, that comes in that I wanted to share with you is. Um, so what, if anything, is the federal government doing or planning for people who are disabled? Many are high risk, have extra needs. Most have an income of around $1,100 a month, um, which already isn't nearly enough. 75% of the clients of our Jewish Family Services, which is our social service orientation in the Jewish community, uh, under 65 are disabled. Uh, so these are not seniors we're talking about, but they're you know, the um, younger folks that are disabled. The government's talked a lot about helping the most vulnerable, but they don't seem to have addressed these needs uh, nearly enough. So what are we? Yeah, it's a. Sorry, yeah. go ahead. No, sorry. No, it's it's a it's a good question and it's an important question, and um, I, uh, I mean, I give uh, an applaud. Uh, the government for the programs that they have put in place and how those programs have been adapted based on need. Um, minister Qualtro, who's Minister for Persons with Disabilities, has indicated very recently that there will be um, support, specific support coming with for persons with disabilities. What that will B is yet to be determined. In fact, that was a question that has been asked by um, several MPs. Um, so I, I mean, I think it's going to be coming um, to assist in, in various circumstances with respect to the, the challenges that, uh, that people have. So um, I know that it is something that is on the radar um, and hopefully that's going to be coming in the next week or so. I'm not sure of the time frame. So along those lines, and you mentioned it before about, you know, when I was talking, we were talking about the UBI and that we need to tax the, the you know, the wealthy. So, so 
we, you know, we've been doing what I think is necessary for a society, and, and, and I think economic models show this, we've been throwing money at the problem, um, and that's been uh, alleviating some of the pain. Uh, but where is this money going to come from? When, when the bill is due, <laughs> how are we paying for all of this? Well, it's a, it's a great question. And um, it is certainly a question that I and almost every other, uh, well, not almost every, most MPs are asking. And I don't think there's anybody that would dispute the necessity of the programs that have been delivered, nor would they dispute the extraordinary cost um, that those programs, um, that they cost. Um, so there have been many questions of the Minister of of finance to give us or uh, when the, the federal budget is going to come, when there's going to be um, the fiscal projections uh, and to enable us to have some discussion around where we sit in terms of our debt, in terms of the debt to GDP ratio, which is going to, um, it's still um, manageable, but we're trending in the wrong direction. And the amount of expenditure um, is certainly not sustainable. Um, so there has been a, a big press to have these conversations. And I understand um, the Minister of Finance wanting to have concrete numbers before he gives that fiscal update, but that update has to come soon. And um, to your question about what we're going to do or where the money is going to come from, the challenge, I mean, to be completely out there, is Nobody wants to talk about that before the next election. Um, certainly the government doesn't want to talk about that, but um, we have to. And I mean, it's an opportunity to talk about what kind of society we want to live in, how we want to provide for people, um, you know, the universal basic income that we talked about. Um, so where is the, the money going to come from? Well, there might have to be a, a super tax on the wealthy. Um, I no, no, no government or opposition party would ever raise this, but I think it's an important conversation to have. Um, raising the GST, um, it uh, uh, is a good source of, of revenue. Um, uh, having conversations around different programs and where we make those investments. I mean, these are considerations that uh, the, the finance minister is going to have to have, that there's going to be um, a necessity to have debate around and, you know, the conversations about reopening the economy and the Prime Minister has been known to say many times about it's going to come back, um, uh, what does he say, um, it's going to come back guns blazing or charged. Um, uh, I mean, we really have to have a conversation around what type of economy we want to have when we come back. And, and I think like underlying all these things, I mean, yeah, of course we need to look at our GDP and um, our debt to GDP ratio. Um, but there are other ways, and I said this in the House of Commons when I was in Ottawa, there are other ways to measure um, standard of living and the well-being of Canadians. And that's through you know, some measure of a well-being index. And GDP is, has historically always been used to measure the well-being of, of, uh, of standard of living. But I think we need to look at, look at other models and um, what we want in terms of a resurgence of our economy. We need to consider um, opening up our country, <laughs> it, having people come to our country to fuel our economy, um, moving quickly, um, as I think we should, my own personal opinion, to a greening of our economy. Um, 
uh, new technologies transitioning um, from uh, uh, dependence on oil and gas. Um, all of those considerations uh, I think need to be made and, and how we, uh, um, the fiscal tools that we have in terms of, uh, of uh, transfers, et cetera, to provinces and, and territories. Wow, I hope so. I hope so. As I said, it's an yeah. opportunity for us to really do good. We have a bunch I of agree. questions piling up, so I'm going to try to run through these. I won't call it a lightning round, but we'll, we'll try to go. Quickly. Oh, you want me to? You want me to be succinct? Right? No, it's more. I will. Um, <laughs> you know, you should always worry when the when the rabbi takes off the watch because you know that just means they're not going to pay any attention to time. So, um, but I'll try to get through a couple of questions here. So one is along these lines of all these government programs. Do you think we have enough oversight and accountability? In Parliament, you mean? Yeah. Um, I, I think that my short answer is no. I, I, I mean, we, it was an historic time and an extraordinary time and provided in the first piece of legislation that passed uh, in mid-March um, the ability for the government to respond agilely to um, the COVID crisis and be able to um, have these aid programs. Um, but this is the big debate and I'd be very interested to know what you and, and your Congress think. Um, I believe that um, our democracy is essential and um, checks and balances are essential. I believe being in Parliament and having vigorous debate about um, issues like the economy and reopening are incredibly important. And um, while we have been functioning in a virtual committee Parliament um, scenario, uh, we need to um, figure out, and, and we have the technology, as you've said, um, how we can get back to that place where it's not... Um, horrible for a member of parliament or an opposition to question some of the things that the government's done and vice versa. Um, so we need to have that accountability um, uh, um, increased and, and we need to, you know, my own personal view, get back to having, uh, although COVID and, and health and safety being of paramount importance, having conversations and actually doing our jobs as legislators and looking at uh, um, other issues as they um, continue to arise. Thank you. A few of our questioners want you to put back on your Minister of Justice hat, former Minister of Justice hat for a moment, and talk about the impacts of the courts being closed for so long, and what do you think the long-term impact of that will be on our justice system? Well, I, I mean, we, uh, um, the court system has um, for a long time had a, um, difficulty, as you know, in terms of delays, and uh, this is, is not going to assist in terms of the backlog. Um, I know that the Minister of the current Minister of Justice is very aware of that. I see that he's continuing to appoint justices. Um, there's going to have to be some um, real conversations about how um, uh, the court system, the justice system can continue. And that's just not actually having cases heard, um, uh, but also um, um, processing corrections. Um, uh, there are significant challenges there. Absolutely. And, um, you know, there's other issues that we don't have time to get into around what we're seeing, um, the challenges we're seeing around hate crimes and racism and um, the impacts that that is going to continue to have as well. But uh, the justice system, like many other areas in our, our society, is uh, being significantly impacted. You're right. And I know we can't go into it in great detail, but I do want to touch on hate crimes for a moment because you know, we all see the the outsized impact that this pandemic has had on hate crimes within the Asian community. Um, and 
is there a plan to provide increased support to deal with uh, with hate crimes in general, but in specific uh, with regard to the Asian community? Yeah, I, mean, I hope so. Um, um, I've asked that question. Many other people have asked that question. Um, the, gov the federal government has a, a significant role to play in combating hate crimes. Um, and I mean, there has been anti-racism strategies that have been put out by the federal government, but um, what we're seeing and what we're witnessing, um, you know, here in Vancouver has been just awful. And, you know, even I, I know we all have heard about that woman who was an Indigenous woman that was mistaken for an Asian Canadian. <laughs> um, and it's just, it's terrible. We all, the federal government has a role to play, but I'm so grateful um, for people here in Vancouver and the province for calling out hate and calling out racism when they see it. Um, we all have a role to play in that regard. And um, uh, there needs to be something done. Asian Canadians are as much Canadian as anybody else. And simply if we have a disagreement with the way um, another nation state operates, um, it's no reason to be discriminatory or racist against Canadians. Um, and I hope that not only to combat racism and hatred, um, in addition, I think that the, gov the federal government needs to be very clear um, and not uh, uh, or call out um, where another country is, is not uh, abiding by the rule of law and um, be very clear on their positions on those issues. Thank you. Um, can we talk about the Canadian-China uh, relationship in, in with regard to the pandemic? I know that we received some PPE that we had ordered from China that was that was not did not meet standards or was defective. There's been talk about partnering with uh, a Chinese company with regards to, to uh, vaccine development and even testing uh, on Canadians. What's what's the relationship between Canada and China right now? And I guess it's it's not necessarily related, but it, but but with regard to vaccine. So those are two separate questions, uh, but there seems to be some overlap. So how are relations between Canada and Canada and China? And then can you talk about vaccines and uh, plans for that and development? Well, um, I mean, honestly, Rabbi, on, on the first question, how is our relationship with China? How is the federal government's relationship? I, I mean, I don't necessarily have a clear answer on that. I know it is... Um, there have been um, significant concerns raised by many members of parliament, um, raised by constituents um, around the two Michaels still being um, held um, against their will, uh, around um, concerns with respect to how China um, governs itself and human rights issues that we have. Um, I. I saw, and I mean, I, I know that foreign affairs and the intricacies of diplomacy are, are as I said, intricate and, and complex. Um, but I feel, um, not only for myself and other members of Parliament, but Canadians generally are becoming more and more frustrated with the uncertainty in terms of the, the, the relationship between our country and China. Um, uh, yes, we got, uh, China is the biggest manufacturer of PEP. PE, as I, I understand it, and um, we need to, to figure out what we do in that regard. Um, I know time is short, but in terms of a vaccine, um, I am hopeful, and the Minister of Health 
indicated this the other day that they're going to continue to work in our international with our international community to find a vaccine. The only thing that I would say um, with respect to a vaccine, I know there's a lot of testing that's happening, is I believe, like with China, like with being a um, standing up for human rights around the world, I. Canada can be a leader in that, but Canada can also be a leader in terms of a vaccine. And when we have a vaccine, which is going to be you know, somewhat down the road, um, that we strongly advocate at the World Health Assembly for the distribution of that vaccine to the most vulnerable among us around the world, and then that distribution of that vaccine be equitable. That's place where I believe Canada can play a fundamental role and it's gonna to have to step up and, and uh, um, take that leadership role. And even if uh, challenges come with respect to it, I think it's incredibly important in our global reality and, and recognizing the vulnerable among us. I would agree. And speaking about the vulnerable among us, I, I think that we're, we're all aware of the, uh, the particular risk that our vulnerable communities, particularly our homeless population or those without the ability to safely shelter, uh, experience in the midst of this pandemic, it's really highlighted our need to address uh, that social issue. Um, are there steps that the federal government is taking to protect the most vulnerable in our society to address, uh, I mean, I think about the downtown east side and how that just seems like uh, really through Dr. Henry and, and, and Minister Dix and the good work of our Vancouver healthcare system, what, what could have been and still could be, you know, a, a raging wildfire of, of the spread of this pandemic has not yet happened, but I yeah. worry every day and even still, you know, going forward, these folks are going to need, you know, the ability to have good hygiene, to have a, a place to, look, if you're sick, you want to lay in bed, you don't want to lay on a street. Uh, you know, you want you want a bath and a shower and a warm meal. So, what what are we what are we going to do about that? Well, I I mean I think this goes to um, I mean we're still coming out and God forbid there is a second wave, which I'm sure there will be in some way, shape, or form. Um, we're coming out of a, a pandemic that has caused us to reflect on so many different areas and, and particularly among the vulnerable. Um, in Vancouver, it's always been a huge issue around housing. We need to figure out housing. And we have, during the pandemic, figured out ways, as you say, to assist people that are on the streets or homeless. And if we can do that and provide the necessities for people during a pandemic, we can certainly do that in everyday life as we come out and adapt for that. Um, and the federal government has a, has a definite role to play uh, in doing so. Um, uh, and that has everything to do with our healthcare system and providing for vulnerable people to ensure in remote communities, indigenous communities in particular, that there is some safe drinking water. Um, the, the challenges that vulnerable um, communities face, including seniors and our elders, um, has been highlighted by this pandemic. And um, if we can't do something about it now, um, when will we ever do it? It is our responsibility and in preparation for a potential you know, resurgence or another pandemic, when we address the healthcare needs, when we address the housing needs, when we provide people with dignity of a basic universal income, we will be more prepared for anything that will befall us in the future. So the negatives that this pandemic has highlighted is something that if we haven't learned from this test that we have been given, um, then uh, shame on us. But I think that, uh, that we're in a place where we are learning from it and we'll act on it.
Wow, thank you. Um, I want to try to get two more uh, quick questions in. Uh, one, your role in the government's changed now as an independent. Uh, how are yeah. you? How, how are you finding that uh, that ability to be a voice, to have a seat at the table, um, to be part of a discussion, to deliberations on COVID programs, and, and just you know on the governance of our of our nation? How's it going? Well, um, I, it's not going to surprise you, Rabbi, but I I really love being an independent MP. Um, not that I didn't. You always work. You always work. I, I know. <laughs> <laughs> not that I didn't speak my mind before, um, uh, but I, I continue to have that ability, and actually even more so with COVID and the virtual parliament, um, I have the ability to speak more than I ever have. All there's four independents, and I take every advantage um, to do it. Um, government has been very open. Uh, there's um, uh, calls that happen every day where you can ask ministers and they've been pretty receptive to, to having conversations but um, the role of an independent uh, in this pandemic has been extraordinary and um, have been able to express the concerns of the constituents here in Vancouver Granville but I think more broadly than that and I know you have one more question you want to ask I think um, and who knows um, I don't even want to think about an, another election. Um, we just need to make sure we come out of this intact and plan for the future. Um, one thing that has been highlighted for me is the fundamental necessity that we work together and that there are so many occasions where politics and partisanship have no place. And um, when we do work together, and we have, um, you can see the results and um, the benefits that accrue to Canadians. And more than ever, people just want to be heard, have their issues heard and contribute to the discussion. And um, if anything, I hope that there are more independently minded, if not independent MPs that, uh, that come out of um, um, facing challenges. I think that's uh, a lesson that I have uh, learned and really um, am happy to see. Thank you. I mean, really, the last question is, I think, one that's woven through all of your answers, which is that in the midst of the of, of the challenge of this pandemic, the, the curse of this pandemic, there have clearly been blessings. There have clearly been silver linings or glimmers of, of, of those. Um, what do you think some of those have been for yourself or for our country uh, in, in the midst of this? Uh, I, I mean, I feel that things in life happen and they happen for reasons. And um, I, I, obviously we have been tested and, um, you know, communities, I mean, your community, many communities have faced extreme hardship and atrocities that have existed and, and um, those enable us to come together more as a community and to help one another. Um, silver lining, um, I'm hopeful that we come out of this pandemic as a, a more caring and loving society, that we understand the fundamental humanity that runs right through everything that we do and decisions that we make. Um, uh, highlighting the vulnerability that exists within our society and, and having people in a very concerted way have reflections about who we want to be as a society, how we can protect the most vulnerable and provide them with the space to be everything that they wanna be. These are silver linings, um, depends on how we take them and, and how we move and take action on them. But I think we're there. I mean, like just go outside and you listen to people bang pots at seven o'clock at night. I mean, it's just it's totally cool, right? And, and it's a coming together. And 
Um, I mean, I hope that continues. I think it will continue. Um, people's memories are long and the memory of, uh, of our community here in Vancouver coming together and, and likewise across the country is, is something that um, I think will be reflective. I'm hopeful will be reflective in the different um, decisions around laws and policies and approaches to protecting that um, and embracing and supporting that common humanity. Yeah. You know, I tell my children, I say, you'll look, you'll, you'll tell your children or your grandchildren that you lived through the, the pandemic of 2020. And uh, they'll ask what Zoom was, I'm sure. But yeah, I know. Uh, you, know, you actually use the and but, but they'll also, you know, talk about the lessons of how we were home every night. And that, you know, we were, exactly. you know, we were together and our neighbors were banging pots and pans in the same way that the generations before us told us stories about, you know, the wars and, and uh, you know, times when societies had to come together in crisis. Um, Jody, I want to thank you so much uh, for being so great during this webinar, uh, for being such a tremendous partner with me and with our community. I want to acknowledge that this took place on Coast Salish lands, even in virtual space. Uh, yeah. We're grateful for that and we're grateful for you. Uh, this uh, webinar will be available for those that want to watch it again uh, on our YouTube page. Uh, Temple Shalom has services tonight at 8.15. It's a special service because our high school graduates are being acknowledged. You know, they're not yeah. getting the graduations that uh, many of them plan to have. And as they graduate from our uh, uh, Jewish education program, we're going to give them an opportunity to be recognized and even to speak tonight at 8.15. And that's available on all these same channels. Uh, Jody, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for the work you do for our community. It's always a pleasure. It's been wonderful to be with you. Well, I appreciate that, Rabbi, and if I could, I just want to thank you for the leadership that you've always shown and the guidance that you've always provided me, and, and uh, I, I really, and I know that everybody feels this that's listening, I want to, um, you know, this is the politician thing, but it's so true to thank, like, all of our essential workers, all of our frontline workers and healthcare providers that have uh, been able to navigate and get us through to the place that we are this, uh, this pandemic, and I know that that work will continue, so thank you very much. You as well. Take care. I'll say Shabbat Shalom and stay safe and healthy. Shabbat Shalom. Take care. Bye. Bye. So that concludes our webinar uh, this afternoon. Thank you for joining us online. As I said, this will be available uh, in a recorded version uh, in about an hour or so on our Facebook page and our YouTube page and our podcast. Uh, where you can find all of the Let's Talk About It conversations that we've had with uh, about healthcare in our society, about uh, financial planning in the midst of a pandemic, uh, parenting in a pandemic, and just recently this past Wednesday on um, estate planning and end-of-life decisions in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, we may have a couple of others uh, coming up as we start to uh, explore some new topics, so I hope that you'll keep uh, an eye on our website and our uh, social media channels for those as well. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you to everybody back in the office that made this possible. Um, it's, uh, it's, there's a whole crew behind all of this making sure that I get the questions and that everything uh, shows up online as it should. And uh, we're tremendously thankful for that. Uh, that concludes our program for this, uh, this afternoon. And uh, we will see you again soon. Take care and Shabbat Shalom.